hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome to episode 39 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I sat down with Don Dobras, the CEO of Credo Beauty. Credo is the largest clean beauty retailer in the U.S. With over 130 clean beauty brands and over 90% of these brands founded or run by women, Credo is on a mission to establish the highest standards in beauty retail by rethinking what goes into products, onto your skin, and down the drain. In this episode, Dawn shares with us her impressive career journey from launching and growing OldNavy.com to over $200 million in sales to holding numerous leadership positions at both large corporations and startup companies. Dawn talks with us about how she became the CEO of Credo, the importance of surrounding yourself with greatness, and how she works to create her own opportunities. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Dawn, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm so excited to hear your incredible career journey and becoming the CEO of Credo Beauty. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's such a treat to talk to people. Yeah. <laughs> in this weird ahead. world we're in. Yes. Um, so let's start from the very beginning. Where are you from originally? Uh, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. I moved there when I was six weeks old. So I guess technically I grew, I was born in Ohio. Um, but yeah, I grew up in the Southwest and, um, spent my childhood there, went to school on the East coast, um, spent a lot of time in Ohio during, uh, with family and now live on the West coast. So I feel like usually I'm one degree from a lot of, um, people's hometowns. Yeah. And so what was childhood like for you growing up? What did you want to be when you grew up and you know, sure. what kind of siblings did you have? Yeah. So I'm the oldest of three girls. Um, and I would say my sisters are, are super important to me even today. Uh, one of them is an adventure travel specialist and lives in South America. The other is a school teacher in inner city Oakland. And they both do really dynamic, interesting things. And, you know, I, I feel like my job's pretty dynamic and interesting. So I think sometimes as a parent, like, what did my parents do to like motivate us to like do these big things? Yeah. And um, look, we were, our parents raised us with kind of, um, big expectations and a lot of freedom. And, um, so like we roamed and we climbed walls and we rode horses and we played kickball with the boys. And, you know, I mean, we just had, we had a lot of freedom. And, and so I think about that a lot as I raise my kids is just like setting high standards, but also giving a lot of freedom to make mistakes, fall down, get hurt, um, do, do big things. Uh, so yeah, I grew up in Arizona and um, I haven't lived there since, but I just did a COVID bubble trip to go visit my folks and it was great. I hadn't driven home in a long time. 
Nice. And so what did you want to be when you grew up? Yeah. Uh, I, I was thinking about this. I looked at your list and you were like, what do you want to be? I actually, and this is documented from fourth grade on, wanted to be an archaeologist in Egypt, which I don't know where that all came from, but uh, King Tut was rolling through the country at some point in the in the 70s and 80s. And so I'm sure that's how I got hooked. But I was always that kid that uh, had, had a business going on, like sold the most Girl Scout cookies, uh, had the biggest lemonade stand, was always... Um, starting a business, running a business. My sisters and I um, made and sold clothes in college. Like we were always doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just kind of an entrepreneurial slash business bug from I think first grade on. Like I, my my earliest memories are um, like not just lemonade stands, but like making money at lemonade stands. And, um, yeah, I remember and there's a time. difference with that too. Cause I don't oh, think yeah. that that, uh, happens at every lemonade stand. I think it's let's sell something. Oh, no, I remember getting scolded by my mom because I was, she made me pay for the cups. I was using like those Dixie, um, wax paper cups mm-hmm. and I was taking them out of the trash after people use them. So I wouldn't have to spend the money to buy the cup again. And she's like, you can't do that. <laughs> but I was already trying to maximize costs or expenses. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, we can just wash them in the sink, mom. What do you mean? I was just like, mom, but then I don't have to rebuy them. So yeah, (laughs) no one will know. Exactly. A little scary. (laughs) So this entrepreneurial kind of bug that you had, I mean, what did your parents do? Were they entrepreneurs? Yeah. So my mom was, I guess we'd call her stay at home, but she is, it was involved in every, everything around. There wasn't a board or a charity or an event that she wasn't in charge of. So um, I think the stay at home feels very light description of that. And my dad was an entrepreneur and and did a lot of different businesses and investments. So we were used to, uh, or I was used to and grew up in an environment where there was flexibility and deals going on and change and it was okay to try something new. It wasn't just like a set um, structure. Uh, And I think that's served me really well throughout my career. Yeah, definitely. And so you, you know, grew up, you thought you wanted to uh, be a archaeologist. How did I detour into, I spent a lot of time in the fashion industry and um, in middle school, we had to do a project and I actually wrote to the CEO of Esprit Clothes at the time. That was like the cool clothing company. And she wrote back. And I got a big package back. I wrote a whole thing about it. And from then on, I really started connecting actually with CEOs at different stages through high school, through college, and just reaching out straight to CEOs. But and why would the, you why would you think it's okay to reach? I want to know where that comes from. That's not yeah, normal. I don't I don't really know. Like, I mean, like I said, like I would just was like, I think your company's cool and here are all my ideas. And um, you know, I, I guess in seventh grade it didn't really cross my mind that other people weren't doing that. But then when I got a good response, I, I have always now engaged, even when I've looked for new opportunities, I've just tried to engage at the founder or CEO level, level and have a conversation. And what I will say is now that I'm, I am a CEO, I like it when people reach out and when they have ideas and have passion about the business. And more often than not, I try and make time and connect with them and talk to them. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, maybe the seventh grade project was really good and that set me on this path. But, uh, yeah, I really got focused on um, 
following creative creative industries, but being the business side of them. And that left brain, right brain seems to work really well for me. When I was in college, I was a double major and I was an art history major and um, economics. And so this idea of left brain, right brain really has always been a good fit for me. Interesting. I, I think it's fascinating that you were so interested in kind of connecting with these CEOs at such an early age, not only from a confidence standpoint of I'm going to reach out to them and I don't care, you know, that's really at such a young age to do something like that. Um, but even just to feel that your thoughts and ideas would be heard and respected, you know, where does that come from that confidence? Um, but also what did you hope to achieve by reaching out to them? Uh, it's a good question. Cause you know, I, I feel like, wow, I feel like I should get on the couch and lay back and be like, Oh, let's psychoanalyze. I, I haven't actually done a lot I feel of like time. Everyone says that on the show. Thinking about it. Yes. I, you know, my family calls it bossy sometimes, but I would just call it, uh, straightforward and, and knowing what I want to get, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I've never felt super intimidated by reaching out to people. And again, if it's done with, you know, I love your company. I love your story with research and authenticity and a real desire to learn more. It has more often than not been met with um, a really positive response on my side. So I think that's definitely the more positive feedback you get, the more you do it. And um, I don't know, I, I have tried a lot of things in my life and found that when you take that first step, there's been a lot of rewards. I was a walk-on athlete in college um, and a sport I'd never tried. Um, I ended up being the captain of the rowing team because it sounded cool and, you know, I kept at it enough. But uh, this idea of step, you know, trying new things and reaching out there is just, I've had a lot of rewards in my life for doing that. So I think it probably builds my confidence that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you started that at such an early age that it was a good head start, I think. Yeah, I guess. Did you tell your parents you were going to reach out to these CEOs and they're like, okay, sounds good. Or did you just not tell them or were they like, yeah, you should do it. Do you I mean, I was always them? doing like, I was like, all right, after the lemonade stand, we're going to like, I sold things door to door. They were, they were used to my personality and they were just like, all right, whatever you want to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd be like, I need you to drive me to the post office to mail all this stuff. They'd be like, okay. Yeah. So um, I think it was part of my personality. That's funny. They're like, not sure what you're mailing, but sure. Whatever you want. <laughs> no, I, know. I did too. Right. Like they were excited. They were like, that's a big deal. You should be excited. So, you know, I think they were appropriately interested in it, but didn't criticize me um, for kind of asking or doing this kind of stuff. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So you went off to high school and college. Um, how did you yeah. decide what college you wanted to go to and what you wanted to major in? Super random. I mean, uh, again, from an early age, I was like, I want to go to an Ivy League school. I don't even think I knew what that meant. But um, in, I grew up in Tucson. This high school I went to, very few people left, went out of state. Um, out of my class of like 400, I think like five of us left the state for college. So... Again, I just kind of had it in my head. Like, I want to go to an Ivy League. I applied to all the Ivy Leagues. I got into one. I hadn't visited. I showed up at University of Pennsylvania. It was the first time I'd been on campus. 
it didn't look very nice. I was kind of like, oh God, what did I get myself into? Um, turned out to be a formative, awesome experience for me. Um, being around really intense, sometimes aggressive, like smart people um, pushed me really hard. And um, I didn't like the snow very much. But like I said, I had always been an athlete and that's been, athletics has been a huge part of my life all the way through competing. I like to compete a lot and walking on, being a walk on onto the rowing team and then like kind of clawing my way through that. And ultimately um, it's become a lifelong passion. So again, just like going on these journeys and seeing what you'll find or what you can do uh, has been really, really a big part of my story. So it sounds like you loved rowing. You were doing that quite a bit in college. I did in college. I did after college. I've competed. I still compete, actually. Wow. I'm on an adult rowing team where we travel and we compete at pretty high levels, nationals. I, one of my goals is I want to row, row at Worlds. So, I, you know, you are going to have the big goals out there so you could go compete. Yeah. It's older and kinder and gentler, but it's still worlds. Yeah. So um, being in athletics had been really important. And when I think about, again, in business, uh, the idea to compete and to be very vocal and open about that is actually a really big skill set. And when you look at female leaders and some of the um, different ways that we engage and lead, uh, the idea of being very competitive and sometimes, you know, call it aggressive or competitive. Um, it's nice to be able to fall back on analogies of sports where you're, you're very comfortable in that role. And I've been in a lot of boardrooms where I'm the only woman. I've been in a lot of situations where I'm the only woman and, and having that tool of athletics and competing my, really my whole life is, is a great grounding to be in those rooms where, um, the tone may be different than my personal leadership style. So during your time at the University of Pennsylvania, when you were in college, did you have any internships or, or first jobs that you worked? Yeah, you know, not really. Like not in today's day and age. Like um, like I said, we were running this little business where we were sewing athletic gear and I was selling it at rowing regattas. Um, I worked in a fabric store. I, I feel like I babysat. I worked at a camp counselor. Like I did stuff, mm -hmm. but it, like when I look at some of these resumes coming my direction, I was like, wow, I, I didn't do that. And nor do I think it was necessarily the same standard when I was in college that you had to have like five great, awesome internships leading into the next job. Um, when I got out of school though, it meant that I didn't have job offers and my boyfriend at the time and my husband now, and I, we packed everything up and drove across the country. We landed in San Francisco. It was in the middle of a big de um, economic depression. Nobody had jobs. And my first job out of college after graduating from that Ivy League with a double major in honors was um, a retail sales associate. So <laughs> I was stocking shoes. And um, yeah, I stocked shoes and sold clothes. And again, I reached out to the CEO of the company and ended up transitioning into headquarters and kind of started my career from that, that spot. 
So that's a really interesting. How did that happen? So you reach out to the CEO of whatever retail store you're working. I actually worked in retail as well at Express at a, the local mall in Delaware and, you know, learned that I was good at sales, but I never thought about reaching out to the CEO of Express. So tell me oh, how you reached I, out. And, I also and did not, I mean, like I, I had a degree, I was ready to do things. I was applying for jobs and I wasn't given them. So I actually was working at a spree. It's when it was based in San Francisco and I reached out and I was like, I want to work here. And I did a huge study of all the things that they could improve about the company. Since I was working there, I was talking to customers, I was looking at price points. I was just, and I, I don't even have a record of what I sent in. I can only imagine that it was probably pretty free form, but it, it was a full like research doc about what they could improve. And so sure enough, I got um, pulled over and then, you know, ended up in an entry level position um, and shortly after that, got recruited into um, The Gap, which back, I always told my kids, I worked at The Gap when it was cool. And it was cool. And it was growing at one point. Um, but yeah, I ended up getting recruited. So like each step kind of builds along the way. Um, but yeah, it wasn't super fun to, to, to come out of college. And the only job I could find was literally running the shoe department. Um, but I was really motivated not to stay in that role very long. Hey guys, I want to tell you a little bit about a new report we're launching here at Future Commerce in partnership with Gladly called The New DIY. It's all about the new trend that has emerged around the passion economy and modern consumption, which begins with peer inspiration, continues with product education, and culminates into participation or an online purchase. The report covers how these trends start on social media, the importance of great customer experience across all brands, regardless of industry, and the implications this trend has on retailers. You can get the full report today over at futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. That's futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. So you were able to get that entry-level job and then work at The Gap. So what was your experience? What did, what did you learn along the way that kind of uh, helped prepare you for those roles? Yeah, I, again, in retrospect, it's probably easier to see than when you're in the middle of it, right? When you're in the middle of it, you're like, I just want to keep getting the next big job or mm -hmm. doing whatever. But I had a really interesting experience on my first day at The Gap. So I got recruited. I really liked and um, had left a team that I was really like felt good about. And I went over and it was kind of a big step up. And on the f I was hired to be like a senior executive's assistant. And on the first day, I was I had just left HR. Um, she quit. And, um, because she was going to a competitor, uh, they were escorting her out of the building. And uh -huh. I actually remember coming out of HR and I had only interviewed with her, so I didn't know anybody else. And I was coming in the building and she was like, Oh, right. You're starting today. So sorry. This is my last day. And like security hustled her out. And I was like, um, <laughs> Okay. And then security tried to exit me because they didn't know who I was. I was like, no, I'm a new employee. So they like plot me down. And at the end of the day, the president of the company at that time, like they were like, there's an HR issue waiting for you in the lobby. Oh, and I was like, hey, um, I don't know what my job is supposed to be now. And he was like, well, I'm leaving for Europe on a buying trip for two weeks. 
I want you to just walk around the company and talk to people. And when I come back, tell me what you want to do. Um, I mean, and I'm like young, right? Like I'm like a year out of college and I was like, Oh, okay. Um, so I wandered around and I talked to a bunch of people and I ended up like meeting a team that I really liked. And I was like, I actually want to really work with them. Mm -hmm. It turns out when I think back, the three people in that office, all three of them have become CEOs of retailers and they were, they were extraordinarily talented. Those three people that I connected with on that day, I was the assistant then, and I got like got in that pod and started working, whatever. But when I look back on all three of them, they were very junior in their careers. They've all become major CEOs. And so it was number one, an area where there was a lot of talent. Number two, this learning of associate, when you get around good talent, good things happen. Mm-hmm. So get yourself in the right position and don't worry so much about your job. Like I didn't even have a job. I was just like, Hey, so the president says I can work around here. They're like, all right, go sit over there anyways. But I got myself around what I consider greatness, got great training from, um, awesome people. And again, was able to, you know, get myself in a really good position. That's At- really interesting. So surround yourself with greatness was a lesson learned for sure and also like create your own opportunities right they could i could have easily quit i could the other place they could have had me go back to my old job right but i was like you know what i'm over here let's go find it so create your own opportunities and when you you know those opportunities come around being great people so you Uh, met these awesome people but what role did you end up creating for yourself Oh, I, you know, I was a production assistant. Um, I like filed things and followed up with factories and like it, it was not groundbreaking, but I got in and then I got more and then I got more and I got more. So, you know, you can ask for more and ended up running kind of a a department um, over the next two years. And at that point I I applied to business school. Um, My husband, uh, my now husband, my boyfriend, friend at the time wanted to go to business school. I wanted to go to business school. And so we both quit our jobs and um, packed up and went to Boston. And I went to Harvard Business School. He went to MIT. Um, Stroke of luck that our relationship (laughs) that we were in the same city, same time. Um, But getting into, you know, getting into HBS and uh, was another thing. Like it always been something I wanted to do. I knew it was important for me, not so much in the apparel or retail space. And again, another life changing event where I threw myself into and like lots of people, um, met a lot of cool people. When I went to business school, my year, it was only 17% women. So it's very much better now. And so on most of my group projects, I was the only woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was different. I'd come from, you know, my limited work experience to the point it involved in fashion. And so pretty much everybody I worked with was women. Right. Um, And so it it was different. And it's trained me really well, that environment. Um, for all of the board meetings and um, VC pitching that I've had to do in later years where there wasn't the same diversity that I, that I experienced currently at Credo. Um, so, and then at business school, I, um, I took an internship because like everybody told us like, oh, you should take an internship. And I went into consulting because everyone was doing it. And um, I worked for Bain in their retail group. And I have nothing but good things to say about Bain, but I hated it. Like six (laughs) minutes into my first day, I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. I don't think I'm going to like this. And I didn't. Why is that? What didn't you like? You know what? 
a um, couple of things. And it was, it was a mistake. I, I followed the crowd for maybe the first time in my life. And that was really a stupid thing to do. But um, first of all, consulting doesn't work with cool companies. They work with broken companies. Right. And I don't like working with broken companies. I want to work with sparkly, exciting, interesting people. And I don't want to go just work on problems. I want to work on like big opportunities. Mm -hmm. So um, that, number one. Number two, I don't like to make an idea and hand it off. I want to see it through and I want to have that impact. And for me, consulting, like we did these great ideas and they're like, yeah, well, maybe we'll do some of them. I'm like, are you kidding me? You gotta think that problem. You're not going to do anything. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really, it just was a terrible fit for me to be a consultant. Um, a lack of ownership and not the, you know, no choice in who you could work for. Mm. Um, it, I need to be all in. Um, right. so it was great. Um, and like, it's kind of a bougie thing to do. They treat you really great. And again, the people were fantastic and super smart, but it was a terrible fit for me. Mm -hmm. So that again, help has helped guide all of my opportunities of create your own opportunity, go find something you can be passionate about, um, works better for me personally than getting recruited. I've never, you know, experienced a lot of success of finding a passion through being recruited. Interesting. So what happened from there? How long were you at Bain? And then, you know, I just did that for the summer and then I came okay. out of business school and I actually ended up going back to the gap, but that there was, they were like, Hey, we've got this new thing. It's called old Navy. And there's like three stores. And I was like, I want to do that. That sounds really cool. So I started working at old Navy and it was under 10 stores when I joined. And again, on some of these big companies, you forget what a rocket ship they were, but, uh, you know, it went from all of us in a teeny room to like a huge company and, and to ride that rocket ship very early in my career was extraordinary. And the talent that I got to do that with again, was super extraordinary lessons learned on that. Right. Uh, it wasn't a true startup because it was funded. Right. But, um, it was crazy like a startup. So, um, I got this big company, little company kind of back and forth, which has served me really well as I dance, um, in these smaller companies. Now, as I've taken roles in smaller companies that, um, I know where a big company should be going and what, what you need to do to grow a big company. Mm -hmm. I prefer to work in a smaller company in the growth stages or stages of it. That's awesome. And I mean, with Old Navy, you really, I mean, took them from kind of almost zero to like $200 million in sales. Well, I, I launched the website. Like it, it's hard to believe yeah. people didn't have websites at the time. And <laughs> oh, I, I believe uh, it. <laughs> like, I know. And like, I, I think back at one of my presentations, the CEO at the time was not like, oh, nobody was super digitally literate, but I printed out all the pages of the website because nobody wanted to click through. They just wanted to look at it. Um, so it was back in the day where before. Um, so, so yes, I worked in a startup and then I got to do a startup within a startup and I got to launch that division and grew very quickly. Um, it was about I don't know, 50 people when I 50, 60 people when I transitioned into a new role. And so to do that from zero to nothing um, was a great experience for me uh, to like build a company, but mm -hmm. with like a lot of training wheels around me. Um, so it was kind of the first one of building something and uh, with a lot of support. And uh, a lot of focus on e-commerce, which was so kind of 
new ish at the time because right? it was super cool and new and sparkly i was like hey i was like always saying like hey i think we should look at this like i think this is really good like i just like i had been raising my hand like we got to pay attention to this so when they finally were like yeah okay you can do it it was it was um it was something i had asked for for a while and it was uh great to work on so again, got surrounded by a lot of like super innovative people that were trying to do new stuff. It wasn't a bigger company at that time. Um, but this idea of growth and interesting people and trying new things uh, has served me well. Um, that was my first real general management role where I had full PL responsibility. And, um, you know, many people ask me, should you specialize? Should you not specialize? How do you get to be a CEO? For me, the path was, you know, at this point, I had worked in kind of supply chain or production. I'd worked in merchandising. I'd worked in strategy. I'd worked in the stores because that's where I started. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had some marketing and then I moved into digital. So I had I had touched in a lot of those areas so that by the time I got full P&L responsibility, I had more than a passing understanding of how everything worked. Mm-hmm. Again, um, while I've gone deep into a couple areas, uh, this idea of a generalist has been really helpful for me as I've stepped into you know greater roles of responsibility and leadership. Interesting. So do you think it's fair to say that maybe starting out, you're kind of a specialist as you learn the ropes through all these different departments and, and fields, but you're saying as you kind of get to through the ranks of the executive level, really more of a generalist um, response. I think there's, there's a lot of times and there's no right answer, right? I'm just sharing my path, but Um, you know, you can become a CEO by working your way up to CFO and then becoming a CEO. So deep knowledge of finance and, or you could be marketing or whatever. And then there, you know, the approach, which, um, I went was, was stopping in a lot of different restaurants along the way and having that, um, understanding of how to stitch everything together as I went down that path. That um, is number one, way more interesting to me personally, because I like to dip my hands into a lot of areas, but it has served me well so that I have an understanding of different areas as I start to run, um, you know, a more breadth of the leadership role. So there's no right answer. I just, I only mention it because um, I get asked that question a lot. Like, should you specialize? Should I stay on this path or should I branch out? And it's really like, what are you good at? And what do you like to what do you like to do? But the general path was really helpful to me. And you've had such an impressive career, even from after the gap to SVP of strategy and e-commerce for Charlotte Roos, to CEO of Zoba, to, you know, COO of Decorist. So I'm just like really interested to hear, because you kind of had the CEO, COO kind of back and forth. How would you describe, I guess, the the differences obviously are are they vary, I think, from company to company. Um, but how would you describe, I guess, the differences in those two roles and, and which one do you yeah. prefer and why? Um, I guess the answer is I like them both. Um, and in the case of a COO, uh, you're, you're very much there to be the, you know, to be the number two, to be the support for the CEO. So I love the role because it's got a, a wide breadth um, at that stage, I joined a startup where there were like two of us around a kitchen table. Um, she was the founder, but it was still very much like being sketched out. And so it was great. It, uh, you know, we, we got to build a lot of that company together. 
Um, the COO that I work with right now is actually the co-founder of Greedo and we do everything together. So I, I really see those as a really powerful super duo, duo, super twin power together. Like if you can make it work, it's a really powerful um, way for both the CEO and a strong leader in your organization to have the biggest impact. Um, so I like the role a lot and I think it, it's an important one. Many times it's characterized by more like the back of the house operations. And I prefer like a more modern definition of really um, the puzzle piece that works with the CEO of where the CEO can craft the biggest impact and where a strong number two can craft the biggest impact. Sometimes it's a CFO in an organization, but um, someone with who can span a couple functions is a very powerful uh, for our small companies growing. Do you think there's um, particular personality traits that play into the strengths of those different roles? Or I do. do you kind of uh, way there. Yeah, then... no, I do. I think, um, look, as a COO, you need to be comfortable with not being in the, in the spotlight. And frankly, as a CEO right now and working with a founder, um, you also need to be comfortable that you're not the face of the brand. So there's a lot of overlap, actually, in both of those roles. You're there to support and grow either the founder or the CEO and grow the vision of the company. Um, so a healthy dose of, of, of knowing where your impact can be greatest and not needing the spotlight at all times, I think, is important. Being comfortable moving in there um, is also important, right? Even as a COO, you you know you need to take major leadership. You're negotiating major deals or whatever it is. Um, so it's you know the comfort of either being in the the front or being slightly behind. I think is been successful, um, and a lot of those duos that I see work really well. I mean, the most famous one is obviously Sheryl Sandberg and uh, Mark. Yeah. Like, you know, you think about like who goes first, who goes second, where they craft those roles. And, you know, I think she's definitely the role model, the most powerful kind of modern COO out there. Definitely. And so how did the opportunity um, arise to become CEO of Credo? And um, yeah, tell us this story. Yeah. So um, I was with a startup called Decorist. It was a platform for interior designers and we sold the company to Bed Bath & Beyond and the CEO and the founder stayed on. And at that point I did not want, you know, I was ready for a change and it was a great opportunity. Um, and I, I tried some consulting. Uh, it was about the time that Trump got elected. I got very involved in like activism and women's marches and, gun control. So I indulged my other um, passions to like be more active and be more vocal. And all the while I was trying to match up this idea of these passions as activism and like my skill set. Like I have a toolkit now. I'm good at running companies. I'm good at building companies. And I was looking for this jewel, this jewel of a company. And was interviewing very broadly and also just reaching out to founders and CEOs like I have been my whole life and saying, hey, you've got a cool company. Can I talk to you about this? Um, so everything from the upcycling market to plant-based foods to, you know, interesting companies, whether it's Everlane, Rothy's, um, Allbirds, these companies that are doing things that um, are still working with consumers and working primarily with women um, consumers. 
but doing it in a better way. And so when I started to engage with Credo, I, I just, you know, it was like a dream come true. And Annie, the founder, is awesome. We hit it off from the very beginning. Um, I love everything about the company, but most importantly, I'd never worked in a social impact company before. And it's the most motivating, best thing ever, especially when you go through a year like 2020, because 2020, it's hard to get out of bed some days. It sucked. And running a retailer in 2020 sucked. But when you've got a, a bigger calling or a reason to make a difference and you know you have impact in the industry, it is so motivating and um, so exciting, right? Like there's a reason that you, you need to do your work because it's not just about the sales, it's about all the other things that you need to do and fix. So it's been incredible. And I, I'm just going to put a big plug out there. If you ever have an opportunity to blend your passion of whatever you're good at and do it in a social impact way, like to me, it is just this jewel of an opportunity. And I encourage everybody to go out there. I mean, you're doing it your own way. You're, you're listening to people's stories and you're sharing um, people's passions. But this idea of being able to match up what you do and make a difference um, is pretty, it's pretty powerful. And I think our our world needs more of this. So, you know, that's been my step to get into Credo for sure. It's a private equity back um, company. I had worked with private equity before. Um, I don't come from beauty. It is a beauty company. That could have been a huge problem, except for many of the people in the company are very seeped in beauty. And so I get many times in the beginning got to play the role of like, I don't really understand, explain this of a, of a newer customer and asking the questions that maybe, um, a customer might ask. Um, so this outside perspective actually shaped, uh, shaped my path pretty well going in there. Um, but again, this idea of social impact, and as we moved into 2020 of just how important that is for our world and for your consumers and for your employees, um, to have a bigger reason for showing up every day. Absolutely. And kind of going back to COVID, you know, as a retailer, what were some of the challenges that you guys uh, faced in 2020 and how did you overcome them? <laughs> it doesn't feel like it's over yet, even though it yeah. is technically 2021. So I, I do <laughs> feel like we might still be in 2020. Yeah. Um, March 13th was a really hard day. Um, we closed our stores going into COVID 65% of our sales were in retail, 35% were in digital and overnight. And the majority of our employees, the way we structured our company was a retail company. And overnight we became a digital company. And those first weeks, like probably the most stressful, hardest time of my, I would say personally and professional life that we've ever gone through the idea of trying to save people's jobs. And, you know, all of us, I mean, everybody can flash back to March and know the stress. My husband's like stockpiling toilet paper and like canned tuna. And, you know, we were wiping our mail down. Like there was just so much stress in the air. Mm -hmm. And to also know that you're responsible for a lot of people's jobs. And yeah. at that point, people were, were, every retailer was laying people off as fast as they, they furloughing, but that really laying off. Yeah. We made the decision and we worked with the board and, and they were very supportive of this and we retained everyone's jobs. Um, we switched everybody and we were a small enough company that we could absorb that, but we switched every, all of our sales associates to staffing 
on our website to answer chat. So if you go online right now and you engage with chat on Credo Beauty, you will get the best help in the whole world that is not outsourced. That is highly trained estheticians, makeup artists that are staffing our chat. And what happened, and we would have never known this, but there was a huge surge of demand in digital that happened in April and May. Like, extraordinary. In a million years, we would have never forecasted it. Mm -hmm. And a ton of new customers came our way. And we had the best service on the planet because we had all these trained sales associates working um, with virtual chat, running master classes, running things. And while we weren't able to protect 100% of their hours, like we kept everybody on through, um, through, you know, until we could get the stores reopened in June, you know, it depended by geography, um, what markets were opening up. So that doesn't mean like everything's rosy. Our sales are still down a lot in the retail channel, but it was something where I would say Annie, um, our co-founder and James, our CFO and I, did everything we could to save people's jobs in those first scary months. And, you know, it could have been a bad decision. In this case, it turned out to be an awesome strategy decision. Mm -hmm. It turned out to be probably the saving grace of like those first four, four months where we just uh, saw a huge shift in our business and a ton of new customers come in, which has propelled our business through the back half of the year. And also an incredibly supportive ownership and board that gave us the leeway to do that. Um, so pretty powerful. We got through that and we rolled straight into the moral reckoning that our country had with the George Floyd murder. Mm -hmm. And look, when you're a social impact business, um, and people are upset about social impact issues, they stop shopping. And so again, our sales dried up almost overnight because every, you know, whether they were out protesting or they're just too upset for June, like our business evaporated again. Um, and out of that, uh, and we were also having a lot of moral reckoning inside, like what could we do? What, you know, why were we not diverse enough? Why was clean beauty not diverse enough? There was all this stuff going on. And so, um, again, one of the most stressful moments of our career, um, and I say ours, our CFO and our um, co-founder, Annie, and I, we ended up, realizing that the pipeline going into clean beauty, you know, we, we're a retailer, we have 130 brands in our store, only eight of those were founded by people of color. So right, there's a problem there. And as leaders in clean beauty, and really the, the, the biggest leader in the clean beauty space, why did what was going on? And so we came up with Credo for Change, which was a BIPOC mentorship program for people of color, founders in the clean beauty space. And, you know, there's other accelerator programs out there. But what we realized is, or what we, what we believed is that there was a pipeline issue, is that there just wasn't enough support. And so we put this um, program out there. And I remember we sent out the application we posted on Instagram and we were like, I don't know, is anybody even going to apply? And we had 140 founders apply to our program. We only had, we said only 10 slots, we made it 13. Um, and so we start, kicked off a six month mentorship program with the most badass, awesome founders. And by far the highlight of this year has been working with the, the BIPOC mentorship program. And what we realized is 
there were a lot of founders out there that we, and however we had constructed our process or our network was not providing access to a more diverse group. And so huge learning for us internally as a company, um, like when we assumed that there wasn't a pipeline, the answer was not the pipeline. The answer was our access and our own internal process and not bias, but networks, right? Things were coming through our networks and we tend to network with like-minded and our networks weren't broad enough. So um, long-winded way to say it, like, how do we get through COVID? How do we get to this year? It, it kept going. Right. Because then we launched this program and we pulled in all the we, we called every person in our Rolodex and said, we're doing this program. And so we got awesome investors and marketers and lawyers and everybody, CFOs. And we set up um, every two weeks, a two hour program on basic and everything you would need to do to run a pro, uh clean beauty brand and get launched in a big retailer. And so I'm super happy to announce that from that program, one of um, the companies is already launching in Walmart, another's launching in Nordstrom's, you know, a ton of opportunities are coming for this group. And we were able to not, uh, they, they were so awesome. We were maybe op able to make other connections and open other opportunities just based on our own network. And so it was a really meaningful and awesome experience. So this program, um, it's kind of like a mentorship program. Does that mean that I think you said 13 seats or 13 founders were um, selected to participate? Does that mean that all 13 founders and their companies are now on as part of Credo or... So they all pitch. So, so many of them, so some of them are pre, so they're getting ready to launch. Some of them are launched and some of them are way down their path. So that was, um, they're kind of all different. So some of them will be rolling into Credo. So we ended the season with a pitch day with Ulta, with another, uh, with another kind of, I don't know, um, accelerator um, for for retailers, someone who picks up brands and puts them in retailers and with Credo. And now everybody, we're, we just finished in December and now everyone's working through like when those launches are going to happen. So really exciting. And the idea is like getting people, you know, getting them ready for big rollouts. Yeah. Um, so anyways. Uh, yeah, COVID taught us a lot and we did, it took us in all these directions that we would have a gazillion years never thought about. Um, so yes, there was business and we had to flip everything on the head, but it was much more about the social issues about how do you save people's jobs? How do you respond to, um, an issue, a moral issue as mm -hmm. a leader and lead people through that? How do you talk about tough things? Um, how do you keep people motivated when it's really depressing and there's California fires and like, it was the year they kept on giving, right? We rolled right. California fires, shut the stores again, reopened them. We reboarded them during the election. Mm -hmm. Like we've shut the stores multiple times now because it wasn't just COVID. It was all these other things too. And so how do you have those conversations in terms of, you know, you have a remote team, you know, that's all of a sudden there's just different dynamics and now you're leading just a completely different type of company, right? Yeah. And now it's not just retail, it's now digital, everybody's remote. It's like, it's so much change. And like you said, there was um, so much turmoil last year. How did you keep your team motivated? Um, I'm not going to lie. Like there was like a lot of tears. We cried. 
Um, I, I know we're not supposed to say that, but yeah, we cried, we laughed, we tried to make the best of it. Um, you know, I think one thing, this company was very much in startup mode. I was very happy, you know, if I had to ride through all of that, um, to be in a social mission company where people were bound by a bigger um, goal was was incredible. The people we've hired are incredible, gritty, passionate people, and they rose to every challenge and just kept going. Um, as leaders, I, you know, I've never talked about mental health at, on staff meetings before. We talk about mental health. You have to. Mm-hmm. You have to talk about like how you can keep people um, healthy and right. mentally healthy. So, you know, we led with our hearts, and many times those were strategic decisions, but most of it was leading with your heart. And so, with mental health as a topic, um, how did you guys address those things? If, you know, when you had those conversations is one thing, but, you know, as a company. Yeah. So, help? yeah. Uh, you know, communicate, communicate, communicate. I know it's trite to say, um, I did touch bases with every single person in the company multiple times this year, um, really, so I could look into people's eyes and Mm -hmm. talk to them. Mm -hmm. Um, We did cross-functional. So, you know, the Zoom world is very narrow and deep. So you stack, like everybody in their function talks to each other, but the, you know, the conversations that happen informally stop. So we really encourage people to go, you know, to two over to people that you don't normally talk to, but maybe you talk to accounting when you're getting your coffee or when you're going to the bathroom or whatever it is. So right. we really talked about like not just horizontal conversations, but vertical conversations and how you could foster it. You know, like everybody else in the world, we tried the Zoom stuff, but like at the end of the day, who wants another Zoom happy hour? You want to one off them, right? I think we moved past that, but yes, we did all of that stuff. And, um, yeah, and we got through, I think people are also really motivated that we got through and we're on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And question for, you know, the entrepreneurs out there who might be building a clean beauty brand, um, or thinking about it and thinking, oh my gosh, it's a really crowded space. Do I want to do this? What is your view on the clean beauty world? Is it, I mean, I know it's growing, but how, you know, how much is too crowded, right? Is, is it too crowded or is there plenty of room to, for yeah, a lot more so, brands? All right. So first of all, clean beauty is a spec on the entire beauty thing. So yes, there's tons of opportunity. Um, like any business, right? It has to have a powerful reason for being an amazing founder story, a product that kicks ass, right? Like it's, so I think to answer your question is that the first round just had to be clean. And now you have to be, you can't just be clean. You have to have an amazing ingredient story. You have to be a founder. You have to have a good brand. You have to have really efficacious products. And so we're seeing actually an explosion, a lot of opportunity in color cosmetics, which um, in the clean beauty world, skincare saw the most innovation early on. And there was a lag in color cosmetics because of the pigments and the color payoffs were harder to formulate with um, non-toxic ingredients. And there's been a ton of breakthrough in the color cosmetic thing. So that's now like a real explosion. And then the other area that's, that's just starting to explode is hair care. So, um, again, hair care is a big business and there aren't that many clean beauty hair care brands mm-hmm. So to circle back. Like you can't just be clean there. It is fairly crowded in some of these areas, but if you've got a rock star product with a great story, like 
look, we, we launched some great brands this year that it just blew up and took off. So, um, yeah, I don't think it's too crowded. <laughs> That's awesome. So what's one of the biggest things you've learned about becoming an executive and CEO? I know you put that on your question list and I was like, gosh, I hope I have a good pearl of wisdom <laughs> along the way. Um, a couple things when I think back, um, I always assumed my career was going to be a straight line. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, as an athlete and as a, like a, a, like someone who likes achievement, um, was very geared that way. And, um, what I have been able to reflect on is the straight line. I didn't take a straight line. We didn't talk about it. I had three kids along the way and went through three maternity leaves. And that was a big derailment to kind of like that straight line for me, mm. um, personally, because I wanted, I wanted more time in my life for them. And, but what it forced me into was opportunities that because I was having success on my straight line, I wouldn't have moved into had I not needed more flexibility or wanted something different at those times. And so it has taught me along the way to be much more aware of the lateral or the other opportunities of learning things and experiencing new things because you can't tell where it's going to build. Mm -hmm. And now again, in retrospect, I can see had I stayed on that straight line, I wouldn't have been as good of a CEO as I am today because I moved through a company that didn't do well. I moved through a small company. I moved through a tricky situation with another leader. Like I, I got pushed in these other areas um, because I wasn't on a straight path. And I built on all of that now that I use quite a bit in this role. So perhaps it's because... At, as a female leader um, and balancing parenthood, um, maybe I was pushed into a less straight line. Or um, I, I think of the freedom as a female leader where I can make these turns and have less expectations, or maybe it's, it's um, okay for me to make changes. And that's really built my strength as a leader and um, given me a lot today. So I wish I would gone back and told myself, like, it's not a straight line. And like, don't like the stress that I felt at those points where it didn't feel like a straight line or I couldn't get that, you know, was like pushing and it didn't quite come through. Uh, that's part of it that got me to where I am now. And so, um, you know, I would embrace the non-straight line. Nice. Embrace the non-straight line. I like that. And in, in terms of, you know, being a working mom, three kids, maternity leave, how do you think about balancing parenthood with being such an ambitious person as yourself? It's hard. Um, and you got to pick your battles. So for me, um, I'm a better mom. I, I, I've experimented with different ways of doing this. And I'm a better mom when I'm a working mom. I like, I know that I like my mental health and like what I like to do. I need to work. Um, I don't need to work 80 hour weeks. I don't need to work full time, but I need to have that working piece in my life for me to show up and be a good mom for the rest of my family. Um, how did you learn that? How did you discover that? I tried it. I took some time off. I hated it. Like I just, like, I need, like, I, I want more activity in my life. That's okay. I learned pretty early on and advice I share with is only volunteer in school where your kids can see you. So there's a lot of hidden volunteer work. Um, you can help with a school lapathon and plan it, or you can check kids in and your kids see you and you get credit for it. So mm. 
I, I worked really hard at thinking about where the impact was for my kids and so that I could blend volunteering in schools or being as active as I wanted to. I did the things that mattered to them. Um, and so that I could still participate and also um, work full time. So there's not balance. You got to whatever's in your heart. And there are times where I had to dial it back because maybe one of my kids wasn't wasn't thriving and I needed to spend more time with that kid mm-hmm. um, and let yourself do that. So, uh, you know, I would my kids are a little bit older now and I am so thankful that I listened to kind of what worked for me and what worked for them and kind of dialed up and dialed down as I needed to um, because it matters in the long run. Like they don't really care about that marketing presentation or something at the end, but like your if your kid gets messed up or isn't like thriving, it, it matters quite a bit. Yeah. I think, I mean, I'm assuming here, but I'm, I think it's part of American culture is that women feel really guilty. There's like a heavy amount of guilt that if they are totally. working and not and there, I would, say, I would say let go of it. I, yes. um, when one of my kids went to college, I said to them, cause I said, Jacob, you know, remember that time at the immigration play where I didn't make it? And you were really upset with me. And, you know, I was trying to have this like bonding experience. It's like, what are you talking about, mom? <laughs> Doesn't even <I'm> like, remember. <laughs> right. Like, I realized, and then I went through like three other things where I had actually been carrying it and he did not even remember. Yeah. My advice is like, it's you, it's not them. Like, they're like, he might have thought about it for like eight seconds. I thought about it for like eight years. Um, so like they don't care. And in fact, when I was in, when I was transitioning between new jobs, one time I I started to micromanage my family, maybe a little too much. And the kids were like, did an intervention and were like, dad, you need to get mom a job. She's driving us crazy. Um, so, you know, there is guilt, but I would say, um, it's more on you. It's not on them. And my kids also know how to make breakfast and they know how to get themselves to school and it builds a lot of resiliency. Mm -hmm. Um, There's expectations for them too. And I'm glad they know that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I can't make them breakfast and walk them to school all the time. Like they know how to cook their own breakfast and how to get themselves to school. Self-sufficient. It's good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you know, as a CEO, the amount of responsibility is, can be really enormous sometimes. Um, how do you deal with stress? What do you do to reduce stress? Do you have a daily routine that keeps you focused and motivated each day? Yeah. So, um, working out is super important to me. I actually still row, um, in the mornings, which is great. Um, I, so if I don't work out, it's like, probably not going to work so well. I'm also really into sleep. I'm a big sleeper. I work out a lot. I sleep a lot. Those two things keep me like 90% sane and motivated most of the time. (laughs) I also have um, a big a group of female CEOs that I lean heavily on um, that are friends that have, you know, or that I've reached out to and, and I use them as sounding boards um, for any leader anywhere in the top of our organization, you have less and less people that you can ask, like, am I doing this right? Do you have a suggestion? Because you have to be the leader. So surrounding yourself again with great talent and people that you can ask questions on um, has also when I 
experience either self-doubt or have questions or don't know what to do next. Um, that sounding area for me, uh, female CEOs has been really, really helpful. And how would you define your leadership style? Like, how do you describe it? And how many, you know, even from more yeah. of like a structural organizational perspective in terms of like, how many meetings are there that you have where you bring everybody together? Like, can you kind of paint a picture of your leadership style? So what I would say is two attributes. I guess the best uh, indication of your leadership style is what your team says. So I can only say what I think I'm doing and they, they're probably the, you know, they're always the ones that are going to get the better one. But what we, tr what we strive to do at Credo is balance um, a really nice way of working with people and supporting them and being respectful to each other and being very competitive. And many times those two skill sets are not seen in the same culture or in the same person, right? You can mm -hmm. be too competitive or you can be too nice. And I like, we like to do both. Um, and I think you can craft both. You can be highly competitive and want big things and be ambitious at the same time, treat people well and be respectful and think about how you have your impact on the world. So we, we try really hard and I try really hard to blend those two pieces. Like we play to win, but we're going to play nicely. Um, we try and be super positive and, um, I like funny people. I like having funny people around. I am not like the stand up comic, but I like, you know, humor in the workplace. Uh, I tend to be more informal. I don't like lots and lots of meetings. I can't stand PowerPoints, even though I do PowerPoints sometimes. Um, so we get together as a team and it's a little bit different in COVID world versus non COVID world. So in real life, um, I tend to float, through and touch it pretty consistently with every area and every function. Um, that's less easy to do in a COVID world. So we have big team meetings um, once a week. And then I spent a lot of time on Zoom this last year. And I think communication in a crisis is incredibly important. And even if you've talked three times, you can say it again. We are dialing that, like I would say, more heavy-handed approach to communication back this year because it's not healthy to be on Zoom as much as I think the majority of humans were this year. Mm. Um, sitting 10 hours in front of Zoom, going meeting to meeting is not healthy for anyone. Yeah. Um, so even though I think the correct approach has been to over-communicate, we're trying to dial that back and say, yeah, you need more space in your day. You need to go for a walk during the middle of the day. You need yeah. to like go Get do yoga, the meditation, whatever it is. Like you need to do that and go drink. I don't care. Just like, <laughs> just take a break. Yeah. So, yeah, it's changed a little, you know, virtual versus non-virtual, but um, I try and be very transparent and I also try and be very accessible. And really quick, what is one of the biggest, I mean, I, you've had so many incredible, um, you know, career opportunities and responsibilities, and I'm sure within those, there have been some sort of like failures or times where you've oh, yeah. really like, man, I wish I didn't do that one. Or, you know, what was maybe one of those moments, one of the biggest learning lessons that was kind of an ouch, but really, really helped define, you know, that moment or helped you, you know, you learn to pick back up and, and go again or goes back to straight line. Yeah. I, yeah, I definitely gotten kind of a punch in the stomach multiple times. Um, when I joined Charlotte Roost, uh, which is a fast fashion retailer, it was with, um, a lot of people that I worked with at Gap and Old Navy. 
and um, people I really admired and was excited to do a new company with. And ultimately that company went bankrupt Mm -hmm. and uh, like what went wrong and that journey um, was really hard. I did it with people that I really respected and as business deteriorated, you know, it wasn't the kindest, nicest place all the time. Mm -hmm. And it was very hard on a personal level and a professional level. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it would have been easier if I was working with people that I didn't love and like. It was actually worse to go through a, a bad business um, with people I really cared about almost because it, it was just, you know, fell apart. Mm-hmm. So that was one I have been through some really, really tough um, kind of interpersonal issues um, through different startups mm-hmm. and it's all helped me, but it did not feel good going through yeah. and that straight line. If I didn't have those, I don't think I, I don't think I would have been tough enough to get through 2020. I don't know. Maybe I would yeah. but like, it, you know, you need the kick in the pants sometimes to like mm-hmm. build your toughness. It's the same thing as over is working out hard. So in retrospect, I'm glad I had it. It got me through 2020. Um, but kick in the heart, you know, I mean, it's a better way of saying the heart. It's just like, it's not fun. And I think it's hard because I think your instinct is to say, I don't want to feel that again, you know, and you almost don't really want to, I don't know, (laughs) but it makes you tough. It makes you tough. It makes you tough to get through. Um, so yeah, I've had a lot of failures. I've had a lot of failures, yeah. even, you know, even at Credo, you know, how I've managed different board meetings have been more or less successful. So, you know, the expectation is not that everything goes perfectly. It's that you keep getting better, mm-hmm. um, right? Every step of the way and that you are going to have those detours and things are going to be shitty and get bad. Um, but you just got to keep, you know, for me, I just keep pushing forward because, then you get to end up working at places like Credo, which is a gift, um, you know, to work in a company like that. And I feel like it is 10 X of all the pain that I might've had in other companies to be able to work in such a cool company with such great impact. And because you persevered, I mean, I think a lot of people might be in that position at at Charlotte Russe and say, Oh, this is so painful. Like, I don't know if I want to go through this again and again with, you know, what if every company I'm with ends up taking a downturn and it's, you know, a negative, horrible experience with people I really liked, you know? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, yeah. I, I'm relentlessly optimistic. Um, my husband is always like, Oh my God, like enough already. Um, yeah, we, we definitely match each other well, but, um, yeah, I wake up optimistic. That's, that's definitely how I'm wired. And it's good that I have people in my life that aren't necessarily always as optimistic as I am. Um, because yeah, he was much more aware of the onslaught of COVID than I think I was. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's good to have both. How do you maintain optimism? Gosh, you're putting me back on that couch. Um, <laughs> I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, I wake up in my heart, like feeling like there's more things that are good than there are bad. I, you know, I take care of myself. I get a good night's sleep. Uh, I have tons of great friends. Like there's a lot of things that I do to nurture my soul. Mm-hmm. And um, at I was able to craft a a lifestyle where I got to spend enough time with my kids. So I don't have a lot of regrets. 
Yeah. Um, and so all those things I think help me set up for waking up, you know, mostly that things are going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I also, I mean, like, let's be clear. It, it also speaks to like, uh, you know, I didn't grow up in a really, um, a very, a childhood that was very disjointed. I had mm-hmm. parents that were there to support me. So like, it does speak to privilege. And I don't mean that just in the sense of wealth, but in the sense mm-hmm. of support along the way allowed yeah. me to be more optimistic. And I think yeah. that's something we don't talk about when we talk about opportunity enough, right? Yeah. Because if you are homeless youth, or if you're disjointed between parent families, or you don't have consistent schooling, yeah. right? it's harder to be optimistic. Uh, in these. So I have the benefit of a lot of support that helps me wake up that way. That's very well said. I appreciate you saying that because I think it's really tough for a lot of people to acknowledge their privilege, you know, and it's refreshing to hear that. And I, um, yeah, something that's not really talked about enough, I think. One last question before we go, maybe one, maybe two, um, (laughs) as we wrap up here, what advice, I mean, you've given so much incredible advice, but what advice, um, do you have for aspiring executives and business leaders out there who are like, Oh my gosh, I want to be like Dawn. Uh, yeah. So I, I see a lot. I get, I get questions like, what should I do? You know, I, I talked a little bit about functional or, um, generalist, I think it's really important to, to find things that make you jump out of bed and that you can do for a very long time. Right. Cause part of it is like, I'm super excited about this, but you have to be excited about it for every single day for years on end. So it's also knowing yourself, like it doesn't, for some people routine and structure is going to be like the best fit and path for success. Um, for me, I get super bored, super fast. And so I need a lot of change. So knowing that, because once you're there, you're going to shine brightly, right? You know, hard work, perseverance, like kind of the standard things, but getting yourself in the right spot to be able to do that um, comes from knowing yourself and, you know, trusting your gut on a lot of decisions. Um, It's always kind of strange to me when people are like, I don't know which job to take. I'm like, like, isn't it super clear? Like, you know, can't you feel it? Um, So I'm a big advocate for listening to yourself. Um, like, what is it you really want? And the, like I said, the one time where I really felt like I, I was a sheep and followed the, the, um, the herd was when I went into consulting and it, it was terrible. I hated it. So like, you have to know what's, what, what you need. And once you're there, then you can just bring out all your superhero powers and keep going. Um, so that's just like on a, on a personal level. The second is really about women and about female leadership. It, it, and I see this over and over again, get yourself a seat at the table. You know, I mean, look, get yourself in the room, get yourself at the seat of the table. You're not, don't wait for an invitation. It's not probably going to come. So this idea of like, well, nobody's mentoring me, go find a mentor, Mm -hmm. Um, go ask, ask to be an advisor. You know, you have to get yourself in the room um, to be at the table, to have the conversations, to influence the decisions. Uh, and specific to female leaders, uh, I see a lot of people holding back and 
not because they they want to hold back, but because they are not either comfortable asking or comfortable sitting there or getting themselves there. So put yourself, um, you know, in those spots and ask for it and raise your hand, ask for more. Um, you have to get in the room. You have to be at the table and no one's going to like bring you along. It just doesn't happen. Um, so, you know, that's specifically to females. Don't lean back. I always think about um, pretty earlier in my career, I was managing both a man and a woman for a similar role. And she was fantastic. Like she, she went on to Apple and had this amazing career. She was just fantastic. Um, but she never asked for a promotion. And then this guy came in who was not fantastic. He was like too slick, didn't get his work done. Blah, blah, blah. He asked me for a promotion every single time I turned around. You know, I, I didn't promote him, but he moved someplace else and got, and sure enough, got promoted really fast. Mm-hmm. Like, and I always think back to that situation of like a rock star who never asked and someone who asked all the time and was not a rock star. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and so you have to ask, mm-hmm. you have to push yourself forward. Yeah. And, and that goes out to female leaders. Cause I, I, I just finished a bunch of interviews. It was so interesting how the men talked about their accomplishments versus women. And I'm talking about some very senior level, very accomplished people. Interesting. Um, yeah. So the women were a little more shy to highlight their, no, I, mean, I just, I just finished an interview this week and he was like, I mean, I want to be humble, but I'm really great at this. He said that like, I don't want to brag, but I just have to tell you how incredible it was. He said that like six times. And then I had a woman who like literally was competent or a level above him. And she was like, yeah, you know, I've had good luck. And I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And it was just interesting because it was like, you know, six minutes apart from each other. And I was like, yeah. So, I mean, you don't have to say, I'm so amazing all the time, but you do have to make sure it's not luck. There's a reason that you got in your places. And so when I think about particularly female leaders, make sure that you're here, that you're saying what you did. Right. Right. And promoting yourself because no one else will, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know this, you, you promote your own um, podcast as well, but you have to raise your hand. You have to start it. You have to do it. Yeah. And you have to tell people about it. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Don, thank you so much for being on the show. It was such a delight to hear your incredible story and all of your wisdom and advice. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure getting to know you. Hopefully in real life someday. Yes. Hopefully in real life. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.